Welcome to the Informed Life. In each episode of this show, we find out how people organize information to get things done. I am your host, Jorge Arango. My guest today is Steve Portugal. Steve is an independent user research consultant. He is the author of Interviewing Users, which is now in its second edition, and Doorbells, Danger and Dead Batteries. Steve was previously on the show last year talking about research skills, but today's conversation is a bit different. Both of us have written new books, and we thought it'd be fun to compare notes about the process. We decided to split our conversation into two parts. Today's episode focuses on the motivations for writing, and the second part will focus on processes. And now, Steve Portugal. Steve, welcome to the show. I should say welcome back to the show, right? All right. I'm a return guest. Great to see you. Great to uh, have another conversation. I always enjoy our conversations, and I'm very excited to be able to share this one with our listeners uh, well, I can't imagine that there are many people, at least in the in the design space, who don't know who you are. But can you do a very brief um, summary of your career and who you are and what you do? I was born in 1967. Uh, yeah, I'm an independent consultant. My focus is on user research. Um, I do user research. I'm doing it for a very long time, and you know, it's a big category. I think my focus is on qualitative work, which means interviewing people. Before the pandemic, I was someone who always went out to the world and sort of saw what was going on out there, helping people learn things about their customers, my clients that, you know, inform their decisions or their strategy or just overall how they even think about who it is that they are building for or could be building for. And as part of my career, I also um, teach people how to be better at research at conferences and workshops um, and kind of help organizations build up their practices so that they are, you know, making the most out of the skills they have and kind of how they're structured. And, and as part of that, and I think, you know, to feed into today's conversation, I've written two or three, we'll have to figure out how many, what the actual number is, books about user research. I know we're going to talk about that as part of our conversation today. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. You have a new book. It's a new edition of Interviewing Users, right? That's right. Um, was that your first book, Interviewing Users? Yeah, the first edition was 10 years ago, 2013. That was my first book. Right. And then in, I think it was 2017, I wrote a book called uh, Doorbell's Danger and Dead Batteries. And it's a book about the kinds of experiences that people have doing field work. It's stories from all kinds of other researchers about just what goes down when you go out into the world. And then 2023, this year that we're in right now, uh, is the second edition of the first book from 2013. So I don't know if that's two and a half books or three books or two, two with an asterisk. I don't know, but yeah, it's an, it is a new book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, doing a new edition of of a book is is a lot of work, right? I mean, it's it's a different, uh, and I'm hoping that this is part of what we'll talk about. But uh, just to to bring in folks on what we're going to try to do here, this is a somewhat unusual conversation for us. Like normally, when I have someone on the show who has written a new book, the focus of our conversation is the subject of the book. And in this case, we thought we'd do something different. Because 
you have this new edition of your book out, and I have a book coming out in a few weeks. So rather than have it be about the subject of the book, have it be about writing a book. So this is going to be kind of like a dual interview where I'm going to be asking you questions about your book, and you're going to be asking me questions about my book, but not so much about the subject of the book, but about the process of the book itself. The first question that I have for you is, what compelled you to write this book in the first place? I'm talking about the first edition, right? Right. So going back to 2011 or 12, when this this all kind of started for me, yeah, and it, it um, like I think there's a uh, like a meta question that we can explore or not, which it is, is tied to this tied to your question, I think, which is like why write books? Like why would it, why would anyone choose to do that? Um, uh, and, which is a good question, and because I, I I don't know, I talk to people and they say they want to write a book or they don't want to write a book. It's I think it's you know after a certain point in your career, like in our field, we have a lot of peers uh, that write books. It's like a thing that people do. Um, and I think way back when I just looking at what I saw, yeah, my peers do people that maybe were further along in their career or more successful by whatever subjective measure that is. Um, I saw people doing two things, teaching inside, uh, you know, something more formal. I don't like teaching in an academic environment and writing and publishing a book. Uh, those seem to be like I don't know, milestones that put you at another level. And um, it's funny because like as a kid, I always thought I would be an author, but I, that was meant, you know, that was a fiction author. I always thought that was kind of in my future somehow. And then, you know, you actually get an actual career and start doing things. Um, I didn't even pick up fiction until like, again, until two years ago. Um, but yeah. So anyway, I'm getting off of your, your question. Um, it seemed like it just was sort of out there as a thing that I should do. And I had probably, I don't know, three or four half-hearted failed attempts. Um, you know, I used to blog and, and uh, contribute to other blogs. And uh, one day a book agent approached me like out of the blue and said, Hey, you know, you could do uh, we could come up with a proposal and I could shop it around to different publishers based on, I don't know, my takes about stuff. And it was, it was a really open-ended next step for me. And I never really, like, I just abandoned it. I like, I wanted to do it. It was very cool. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing and I couldn't structure a proposal or come up with anything. And I just, eventually it evaporated. Um, I think I had like a shared Google doc with somebody who was another researcher where we were like, going to write something. Um, and we sort of started outlining again, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just sort of self-starting and we both were living in opposite coasts and not really didn't have a vision or any guidance. And so that, that dissipated after a while. Um, and then there was a point at which, you know, I finally met Lou Rosenfeld and we talked about some need, um, and, and, uh, I actually, I wrote him, wrote a proposal for him and it actually got turned down. Um, and, um, you know, Lou is very kind. He says, do you want to hear why you want to have a call? I'll talk to you about, you know, why we turned it down. And, um, I was not as gracious as Lou. And I just said, no, if you're not going to do it. I don't want to know. Um, 
and a uh, a a year or so later, there was just I don't know like a convergence of things like the absence of a book about user research from Rosenfeld or from anybody. Like it was really clearly absent. And I think I was the, there are many people talking about user research now, but there were fewer back then. And I was maybe the most, I don't know, prominent or noisiest or something like that. Um, Lou and I started talking again. We like had lunch at a conference. We met with another person who's a, UX researcher slash author to see like, is this going to be a co-authored book or is it going to be Steve or something? And at the same time, I was getting these emails from people who, uh, you know, like interaction design community leaders and voices saying to me, Steve, we need the, we need a book about user research. And I saw Lou Rosenfeld and I told him we need this book and I told him you should write it. Um, which is the nicest thing that could ever happen. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess what made me do it, what made me want to do it, like it was there as, um, as this aspiration and I had all these sort of false starts. And I think there was this convergence of demand and encouragement and sort of, you know, asking for it and, uh, like a relationship with, uh, with a publisher who's going to, you know, help me get it, get it done. Um, well, it sounds like there's a couple of things there. Um, I, I sketched a little Venn diagram here in my in my notebook, and the two circles say thought leadership. Uh, you know, the, somehow like th there's this notion of hey, you know, you've been writing in your blog, and and kind of people are reaching out and saying maybe this should be more formalized somehow, right? Um, and I have to say, you and I have uh, several parallels here. One is the most obvious one. We share the same publisher. Um, uh, Rosenfeld Media publishes both of our books. But the other the other parallel that we have is that we're both independent consultants. And um, for an independent consultant to be perceived as a thought leader, it's you know it's it's helpful. The other circle in the Venn diagram, though, which I think is very interesting, is that uh, you and perhaps uh, third parties uh, noticed a gap in the space, right? Like the, the this notion that there was stuff in the world that was worth putting into the form of a book that just hadn't been done yet. Right, so you you recognize that opportunity. Um, there might be a third thing there, which is um, harkening back to this idea that it, it it sounded to me like you had a book in you, like since you were since you were a child. Right. I mean, I mean that's like an aspiration without any path towards. Um, okay. I mean, the way I have often thought about interviewing users was, um, yeah, and and I hope this isn't too arrogant uh, a comparison but um you know that idea of the of the the rock band that like plays bars just forever and ever and ever and ever and finally someone sees them and says like hey we want to pull you into the studio and they like come up with this amazing debut album like the history of rock music at least is is, is filled with so many incredible debut albums and you know often follow-ups don't don't live up to it. And that's because they've got, you know, 10 years of material. Um, and so again, it's a little self-aggrandizing to compare myself to like 
a Van Halen or whomever you want. But um, I was, you know, yeah, writing blog posts, writing articles, writing columns, uh, teaching, doing workshops. Like I had a lot of material that was in all these forms uh, that I'd been doing for years and years and years. Um, so, you know, when there was an opportunity to kind of change the form of it, it's like right place, right time. Um, but also, so there was a book in me, not from childhood. I think there was a, you know, an aspiration from childhood, but the, the book was in me from that sort of that period of my career. Cause I'd been, I mean, I had, it wasn't in text form, but it was in all these other forms. That also parallels my own trajectory. My first book project was the fourth edition of the Polar Bear book, the, the O'Reilly Information Architecture book. And the way that I became involved in that is that I, too, had a blog, and I had been writing about information architecture. And one of the blog posts I wrote was about the need to think about information architecture beyond the World Wide Web. If you remember the first three editions of the Polar Bear book, the title was Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. And the point of this blog post was to say, you know, the information architecture is useful for more than just the World Wide Web, despite what the title of the book says. And that blog post led, um, I think it was Mary Tressler at O'Reilly to reach out to me and say, hey, you know, we've been talking about doing a fourth edition. And this sounds kind of right about, you know, right about in the direction of where we want to go. And uh, and and Lou and Peter would like to engage a, a co-author. And uh, one thing led to another, and that's how I ended up becoming involved in that project. So that was kind of my gateway into the becoming an author, uh, uh, you know, part of my identity as well. Was that something that you, like that opportunity came to you, but did you have aspirations or hopes to to do that? As a child, I hadn't thought of myself as an author, certainly not of fiction, but like you're saying, like I had been writing in my blog which is a way of publishing. And, uh, and and one thing that is also worth acknowledging here, and this is another parallel between us, is that I think that you and I are almost exact contemporaries. We are about the same age. We've been in this industry for about you know the same length of time. And I think that that's significant because I suspect that we come from an era where books hold a position of cultural import that maybe is not the same for someone coming up through the ranks today. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case, but like for me, um, you know, I've always had a very high esteem of books and thought of books as, you know, the, 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 the vessels in which certain important ideas become kind of formalized so that you can study them, point to them, like it, it makes them somehow more real. And for someone who was there, you know, when the, the when the World Wide Web started getting popular and then all the revolution around blogging, all of a sudden it felt like the floodgates were opened uh, when it comes to like sharing ideas with the world. Anyone could set up an account in Blogger or whatever and start posting, right? And uh, and it's interesting that uh, we both kind of came into it through that that medium. But uh, the, but the reason I'm bringing this up is I'm wondering if that is also true for folks coming up through the ranks today. Like I don't know that that 
people who are getting started now would hold books in the same regard as they did back when you and I were you know, were kids and and you know getting into the profession eventually. Yeah, it makes me think about. Um, I'm sure there's a proper name for this. I think, uh, right, the desktop publishing revolution. You know, put software in the hands of everyone uh, where they could make uh, right graphic design and make zines or make uh, flyers and posters. And you know, there was some hand wringing over that because there, there's a lot of crap. Uh, we just keep having these cycles of like democratizing access to certain kinds of communication or certain kinds of technology and right you know blogs meant that everyone could write and and uh whatever i don't i don't know if it's linkedin right now or or tiktok you know makes everyone like a a video influencer um and you get we keep getting it seems like we get more and more content um but like I'm um, whatever the number of blogs versus the number of TikTok, you know, post hours posted per hour. Now I'm guessing has got to be much higher than you know blog content posted per week, you know, in the in the era of of blogger as a platform. Um, but I don't know. I think like books are. We live in a world with a lot of content and a lot of a lot of access to content, a lot of democratization, but curation is super important and i think of books as as being like somebody even if we can publish them ourselves um there's a like it's a higher barrier to pub even if you're self-published you still have to hopefully design edit create a get it into the self-publishing platform there is something about that and um i don't know i this is i haven't thought about this too hard as you can hear how dumb my ideas are but um like you, the podcast that we're on right now, you do this with a very regular cadence. So it, even though you talk to somebody different, it becomes this, it's an ongoing conversation, right? There is a, it's a, it's a soap opera. It's a serial, right? There's something that kind of keeps happening, but a book is, is more frozen in time. Um, and, uh, you know, and both of us having done second editions, right? There is that, I, I, I don't know, this, this isn't a question you've asked, but, um, you know, write a book in 2013 and revisit in 2023 and take out all the dated stuff or as much of it as you, as you can, um, uh, makes you hyper aware of everything that I say now in this book has to be more evergreen because it's going to be revisited for the lifespan of the second edition. Um, and so that we're getting way off anything that you asked, Jorge, but like it, it, it changes how you think about, uh, it's a forcing function, right? I'm not going yeah. to, uh, I'm not going to list software programs as much as I might have because, you know, the stuff gets dated. I know you and I have talked about this, like talking about things that are changing rapidly, like AI, it poses a real challenge. It goes in the book. How are you going to talk about it when like every week, it, it, you know, things are changing so rapidly. I don't know. Sorry, Jorge. I like, but I want to hear about, I, I want you to talk about um, maybe revision, uh, uh, revision, or I'm going to two questions for you revision in, in a sense of a changing world, or just, you know, writing in a sense of a changing world, your current book's very contemporary. How did you yeah, think about and, that? Uh, 
Well, revisions are super important, uh, and and but but this is highly related to what you were what you were talking about just now, right? Like this idea that books are a particular medium, and one of the implications of putting out a book is that it is kind of a snapshot of a set of ideas in time, and the expectation is that they're not going to be as malleable as something like a a blog. Or um, there's this notion now of digital gardens, right? And I had uh, Maggie Appleton on the show talking about hers. And and I, I loved um, the structure that she has on her website where she publishes ideas and there, she has a taxonomy uh, to indicate the state of the idea. And I, f- I forget the exact labels of the categories, but it's something like they go from like being seeds of an idea to being like a fully developed essay, right? And uh, and she tags the things she posts to indicate the state of the idea, and she keeps building on them over time. You can't do that with books, right? Like to your point, like books are a much more uh, fixed thing. The process of writing a book, particularly a book about technology, is a little harrowing in that regard. And and I experienced that with um, working on Duly Noted in that um, as opposed to the previous book projects that I've worked on, this one did deal with some particular software technologies. And there was one case in particular where I had a section, um, I had a section explaining how you, how you link things using Apple Notes. And then Apple announced the new version of Apple Notes, which completely changed how you link things, right? And it's like, I had to scrap that and and uh, kind of think about how I was going to do that differently. And, I, and, I'm, I, and, and the book was written with the understanding, and, and I think I acknowledge this in the book, that some of the things that you're going to read about there are going to change because I'm writing about things like AI, which... Um, by the way, the the day that we are recording this, I think either today or yesterday, it's been a year since ChatGPT came out, and it feels like a lifetime. Like there's so much that's happened, right? So I can't imagine. Like I can't imagine because I've done it. Like write a book where like you're trying to address the impact of these tools on something like note taking when when it's a fast moving field. But the the flip side to that though is that. The process of having to think about what is going to stand the test of time about these things is a certain discipline that changes the character of what you put into a book and that and and uh, and changes what you read in a book. And the other thing I will say is that there's another aspect into which books impose a certain discipline in that they're a commercial product you know even like an academic book is in some sense a commercial product in that you have to pay for it uh i mean not all books some books are given away for free for for other reasons but uh, but the type of books that we are talking about are books that are put out into the world as things that you pay for which is not true of blog posts right um i don't charge for my blog um you can read maggie's website for free. And I promise I'm going to circle back to the editions thing, but that the idea that you're going to put out something into the world 
that is going to be subject to the feedback that you get from somebody deciding to actually put hard-earned cash into the ideas. Um, I think it changes the nature of the writing and it changes the nature of the choosing what you're going to write about. And um, and when I see some, when I see a book like yours that is uh, going into a second edition, that to me is a strong signal that the ideas in that book have. I'll talk about a second edition. Yours is a second edition, right? Like the the Porter right. book is in its fourth edition. When you cross the threshold of going from a first edition to a second edition, I think that that is a signal that the market has deemed this set of ideas told in this way you know so it's like the the ideas in the book and also the, the the voice that you bring to it the way that you've explained them the market is sending a signal that this is good that this is working for us right and um and in the case of the polar bear book you know four editions that to me is a strong signal uh, that book first came out in, I believe it was 1998, the first edition. So at this point, that's that's a pretty strong signal in the market that the ideas in that book have um, validity in a way that you don't get with these uh, lower threshold publishing media like blogs and podcasts and TikTok videos or whatever, right? Like those are meant to be more kind of snackable and of the moment. And the benefit of that is that they are more flexible. You can respond to current things and you can change directions more quickly. But the flip side of that is that in some way, books, especially books that have gone through several editions or that have been in print for a long time, um, at least to me, the signal they send is these ideas have been useful to a lot of people over time because this thing is still somehow seen as valid. And not just seen as valid, you know, talking about it. People are plunking down money to say, yes, I believe this is valid. Well, they're in some ways, their brands are like the Polar Bear book. I mean, the way that we even talk about it is, right, it's it's sort of nicknamed uh, based on its image. And uh, it's almost, I don't know, you could say it's like a franchise. I mean, the, right, Fast and Furious, whatever. There's 27 of those movies and different people are in them and different people direct them. And there's still a through line. And so, right, the, you know, the polar bear book can incorporate new authors that can kind of tell that evolving story. Um, and so that's like, those are, that's further, I think, endorsement of the importance of those ideas that the, that the package that they're in or the, the label that we put on that package can, it's, it's a, it, it holds multiple voices and it can kind of morph and grow and still be, still be kind of true to itself. So that's, I don't know, in some ways that sounds like an awesome responsibility to be given. That's your first writing project is, you know, is is getting on board something that has a lot of momentum, a lot of history and trying to bring it into a new, into new era. That's not, it's not trivial. Oh, it was incredibly intimidating working on that book. I mean, that book was very important to me in my own development as a professional in this space. And uh, you do get the sense that you are somehow, um, you know, you're, you're you're making an intervention in something that a lot of people consider to be important, 
and you have to go about it very mindfully. I was just going to mention that another one that comes to mind is um, about face. Um, Alan Cooper, uh, I forget the co-authors, I should look this up, but uh, that's gone through several editions as well. And um, I think, uh, yeah, Alan Cooper and uh, Robert. Robert. Reimer, yeah, and right. I, and they brought in David Cronin, right? I don't think David was there from the beginning. But anyway, there is this notion that the ideas have served uh, served people and there's proof of that because you know there's a market for a, a, a second, third, fourth edition eventually. And uh, the trick then becomes how do you determine what those ideas are that have served people well and expand upon it to make it more relevant to people working today without losing the essence of what the thing was, right? Yeah, don't wreck it. Yeah, don't wreck it. And, and no, very specifically in your case, what's new about uh, the new edition of Interviewing Users and how did you decide on what to bring forward, what to add, and maybe what to cut out if you did? Yeah, it, uh, so I had a conversation with Lou Rosenfeld, I don't know, let's say a couple of years ago, would you want to do a second edition? And I sort of laughed. I'm like, why? Right. The book, the book is still doing well. And, um, you know, I think I stand behind all the ideas in there. Like it's this thing about people to people. So in my, my mind, like that's evergreen, like how you ask a follow-up question doesn't change. And so I had this kind of knee jerk reaction. No. And, um, and then, uh, I, you know, I was coming up on the 10th anniversary and feeling like, um, and I think we're kind of getting at this, like these are significant professional milestones for, for us as sort of first time authors and, uh, like personal professional, it, it changes a lot. Um, if the book is successful then it really changes a lot for, for the author, what am I going to do for the 10 years? This is, you know, it, it's really, it has changed my life. I want to do something about it. Um, and someone said to me, would you ever do a second edition? Like in a, not, and it's a, like a professional chat. And I, and I, I had one of those moments where that no was still ringing really loud in my head, but when they asked it, it kind of opened it up for me. I'm like, Oh, like now it makes sense to do it. Um, and so I just sat down. I didn't, I didn't open the book. I didn't do anything. I just said like, what would I want to talk about? Um, cause I've been living with this book for 10 years and I have been teaching other things and just my stuff that I'm interested in. And, and, you know, you realize what gaps there are. And I, anyway, I just sat down and, and without thinking about it too hard, I'm like, what are the, in my mind, they would be like chapter headings or like topics. And I came up with like six things. I don't, don't ask me what they were. Cause that was like, uh, about a year ago, maybe, maybe a, a year and a half ago. And, and so that was sort of proof to me that like, oh, there's stuff, I do have stuff to say without even thinking about it. I sort of know what that would be. Um, and so like that, that sort of started that process, um, you know, and we sort of, once we got going, we had planning meetings to kind of talk about what that would be. And I think I started a document where I took the old outline and I sort of marked it up and like added new chapter headings, added stuff. And then eventually, like, I opened the book and sort of even at a high level, um, you know, sort of made 
you know, identified other topics. And then I, um, I mean, this goes back to like why I blog and write books. Like I went back to my blog. I went back to uh, LinkedIn and just kind of chronologically scrolled and like things that I had cited points that I had made. Um, it was just sort of a scanning of, of past stuff. I'm sure if I was better at using a second brain tool, I would have better access to that. But yeah, I do use Obsidian and I, I, I went through that. And then I, um, I opened up my, uh, like the, the super set of sort of workshop slides, like the biggest one that I had. And because that, you know, you have a workshop and you, you give you, it, it iterates. So that's sort of the, that mirrors the book, but you can see in there, like all the stuff that I've added to it since then. And definitely stuff that I've taken out as well. Um, and so I started producing like a, yeah, a super set of content um, that wasn't structured or hierarchied or anything like that. But you start to see like, oh, there's, there is a lot of stuff that I want to talk about. That's really interesting because it's um, it's it's a little different from how how I approach. I'm thinking now specifically about duly noted as well and how I went about that. And um, and one thing that I heard there, which which I want to kind of emphasize before writing this newest book, I read a book by Rob Fitzpatrick called "Write Useful Books." that has been really useful to me and i have recommended it to people who say that they want to write nonfiction. and one of the things that rob says in this book is that you should you should teach the material before you start writing about it i think that that's really important because at least for me whenever i've written a book and, and duly noted is my third book project. So I did uh, the fourth polar bear book living in information and now this new one. And um, in all three of those cases, I came into the project with a set of ideas. And like you were saying, it was kind of messy. I had a big brain dump of ideas. And then uh, I do a first pass of the ideas that try to, to structure what the best way to talk about them is. And, you know, how are you going to string these together in a sequence that makes sense to the reader? And the point is that that initial structure is a hypothesis, right? Like it might make sense to me, but I'm not really going to know if it makes sense to others until I start exposing other people to that way of talking about it. And that doesn't really happen until you've either written the book and putting it out there or um, actually shared these ideas with other people in other ways, right? And teaching um, you know, something like a workshop or a course is certainly a lower effort way of doing it than than writing the book, right? Like you wanna you wanna write the book after teaching the material for a little while. Where or what's what's the context in which you were teaching? You have been teaching the the duly noted material. How have you been doing that? Well, so uh, specifically, Carl Fast and I did a workshop at the twenty twenty two Information Architecture Conference on the materials in the book. And that was an opportunity for me to put out there some of the ideas in the book. 
and get feedback on what was resonating or not. Uh, the and the other for me, and and this this was true both of duly noted and living in information, is that I shared a lot of the ideas on my blog and through social media before kind of putting them together into the book. I mean, the book, what the book does is it it actually kind of packages them. But the ideas I've often shared either you know by blogging about them or by uh, by talking about them in in the podcast, at least certainly the ideas that that have gone in duly noted. What I want to do, Steve, because I'm just cognizant of the fact that um, that we've been talking for a while now, is we have more to. I think that we have more to discuss here. I'm really curious about your your process for writing, and maybe we can compare notes on that. And what I think we're going to do is we're going to wrap this conversation here. And then we're going to pick back up in uh, the next episode of the podcast. But uh, before we leave, um, where can folks learn more about you? And uh, especially, uh, where can they get the new edition of your book? So you can find me at uh, my website, which is my last name, Portugal, portugal portugal.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, It's a good place to... I don't talk about this stuff and anything else kind of in the larger scheme of what we're all working on. Uh, And the best place to buy the book is from Rosenfeld media. Uh, And that's rosenfeldmedia.com. And we do have uh, a discount code, uh, which is uh, comes from the name of this podcast informed. There's no the in the code informed gets you uh, 20% off for a, a limited time if you buy the book from rosenfeldmedia.com. I sound like I'm a KTEL advertisement here. Uh, yeah. Well, that's very, very exciting. I'm grateful that uh, you're extending that discount to our listeners. Uh, and I want to encourage everyone to get this book. Your book is one of these that I think transcends its original context. You are kind of within the UX research realm, right? But I think that the skills that this book helps you build are helpful in more than one area of life. It's not just for doing UX design research. So I encourage you to check out the book, regardless of whether you are a designer or a researcher or not. And uh, thank you, Steve. We will uh, talk with you again in our next episode. Looking forward to it. And thank you for listening. I'm excited to announce that my new book, Duly Noted, is now available to pre-order. If you're looking to get your personal information under control, head over to dulynoted.fyi, where you can see buying options. That's dulynoted.fyi. Thanks 